Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I do think there's going to be very serious industrial action and it's going to be very, very tough on the incoming Prime Minister, whoever that is. I mean, literally, they're going to have to throw the kitchen sink at it and the gas cooker because we simply can't have a country in this situation. We shouldn't be the sort of country that patients die because we can't organise ourselves to give treatment on time. Third World Britain co-pilot. Anyone seen the government? One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. August seems a tad early for the NHS Winter Crisis co-pilot, <laughs> as you wrote in Wednesday's Telegraph. So let's have a summer crisis instead. A&E performance has plummeted to its worst ever level in some regions over recent months, with patients waiting up to 40 hours for a bed. Ambulances took almost an hour on average to respond to emergency calls in England during July, compared to the 18-minute target. And so far in 2022, the Office for National Statistics, no less, has reported over 11,000 excess deaths, amidst growing signs based on official data that the impact of lockdown may be killing more people than it saved. Now, no one can prove a counterfactual, of course, Alison. But previous warnings from the likes of the Macmillan Cancer Trust, the Stroke Association, and indeed Planet Normal, that the relentless NHS focus on COVID at the expense of other life-threatening conditions would end badly, they're at least starting to ring true. But we'll come to all that, because let's first address the economy, stupid, and the broader cost-of-living crisis. Inflation, which rose to 10.3% in July, more than five times the Bank of England's target, could hit 18% or more, according to some new city forecasts. And tomorrow, Friday, energy regulator Ofgem will update the price cap on average household energy bills, which, as the Kremlin starves Western Europe of Russian gas, could hit three, four or even £5,000 a year over the coming months. With this Tory leadership contest still rumbling on, Alison, <laughs> the government seems leaderless, rudderless, hopeless. Keep calm and carry on, that's what I say. It's the planet normal way. Speak for yourself, Halligan. Pearson Towers, we're talking about sharing baths and a shampoo on a Sunday night. Oh my God, sacrilege. Did you have that at home? My sister and I were put in the bath with a bottle of Vosine for our Sunday night shampoo. It's all coming back. Vosine? God, it was like having a bath in Vicks or something, wasn't it? <laughs> of course it was. And you get a bit of Pears shampoo if you're lucky. Of course, I never use shampoo, ever. Oh, no, that's because you've got that magnificent Irish mane. That's right. Just hot water? Yeah, I'm not sure calm is the word we're looking for. I've done you a little roundup. I thought you'd like it. 
So as you said, inflation is predicted to soar to 18.6% by January. But you were saying to me, weren't you, six months ago, you thought it was nearer 15%. What is the Halligan barometer or the Halliganometer? What do you think it is now, probably? Let me elegantly combine woke language with world-class economic analysis by saying, (laughs) I think people's lived experience of inflation Mm. is above 20% now particularly lower down the income scale. If you're spending a big chunk of your household income, be it earned income, benefit income, or whatever it is, on food, fuel for your van or car that you need to drive, public transport, even prices have gone up, and indeed utility bills. I think the idea that the cost of living has only gone up by 10.3%, which is what the Consumer Price Index says over the last year, is a sick joke. It's gone up by much, much more than that. This is a long time coming. We were at a 30 year high for inflation back in January before the ghastly war in Ukraine began, which is six months on Wednesday, the day that we're recording. But of course, no one can deny, nor should we, that the fact that the Kremlin has now said that it's going to shut down the Nord Stream pipeline, quotes for maintenance. Fanar, Fanar, for three days at the end of August. That sent wholesale gas markets nuts. Wholesale European gas prices are now up 45% in August alone from already elevated levels. And that's why when this off-gem energy price cap comes out on Friday, the day after Planet Normal is released, a lot of people are going to get a shock. Just remember, Alison, the off-gem energy price cap at the moment doesn't even reflect the war in Ukraine, because it was set by Ofgem in February before Putin invaded. So this is the first energy price cap that we're going to have that reflects the fact that Europe's leading supplier of natural gas is now an economic war with Western Europe. So I think the stat of the week has come from the former Octopus CEO, Greg Jackson. And Greg said that if the price of beer had risen at the same rate as gas, a pint would now be 25 Pounds, But I know you're absolutely excited for my roundup of the week. Go on then. So barristers are going on strike indefinitely in two weeks' time, making it even harder to put all the gun-toting madmen and drug lords who stalk our streets behind bars. Rail workers are continuing their rolling programme of not rolling. Oh, I see what you did there. London Underground staff were on strike last week, as my daughter found out. And not to be left out, London's buses will be hit by a walkout over the bank holiday on Sunday. I hate you, Blakey. I hate you. (laughs) Do you know Olive died? We'll go back to that. I don't want to interrupt the monologue. But beloved Olive from On The Buses gave hope to all of us girls in the 70s who had glasses. On Sunday, dockers began an eight-day strike over pay at Felixstowe, Britain's largest freight port. More than 115,000 British postal workers planned four days of strike starting tomorrow, Friday. British telecoms workers are taking their first industrial action in 35 years. But fortunately, co-pilot, no one will notice because soon there won't be any electricity with which to power our TVs and phones. Similar strike rumblings from teachers and nurses. And just to add to the mood of self-sacrifice and concern for others that characterises our public sector, universities, which are already ripping off British students to the tune of £9,250 a year, say they need a, quote, vital rise in fees so they don't give all of the rich, privileged British kids' places to rich, privileged 
Chinese kids. And you'll have noticed, Liam, that many of our Indigenous offspring who got fantastic A-star grades in last week's A-level results were unable to find a place at medical school. The strict cap remained at 7,500 places for trainee doctors. And in the staggering 85% of talented British kids who applied to medical school were rejected despite the shortage. Oh, look, of yes, GPs. And hospital doctors, and meanwhile, you're going to love this, Halligan. Go on. We are spending six billion quid a year on locums, imported doctors, because we haven't trained enough doctors of our own. And as you said at the top of the show, the NHS has issued a warning telling sick people to stay away from A&E. Don't burn your GP. Don't dial 111. They're very busy not answering the phone. Don't use A&E. What's left, Liam? That nice lady on the till at the pharmacist, she can help you with your brain tumour. Third World Britain co-pilot. Anyone seen the government? God, it used to be the Welsh windbag, Neil Kennett, that says, <laughs> don't get sick in Britain. Now it's the actual NHS. <laughs> A wonderful roundup, but I just have to correct myself because I said, I hate you, Blakey. In fact, that's Stephen Lewis, who was Blakey and on the buses, and he didn't say, I hate you, Blakey. He'd say, I hate you, Butler, of course, Butler, Reg Varney, the Reg Varney yes. character. And talking of Olive, that's Anna Karen, isn't it? Yes. With the National Health Specs with sellotape in the middle. And she died in a house fire in Ilford, I think, earlier this year in East London. I think she did. Yeah, she was great. Simpler Simpler times. times. Simpler Simpler times. times. (laughs) Yes, it was. Having reeled that off, I mean, that just is a kind of cross-section of things we can look forward to. It's absolutely astonishing. It seems to me perfectly clear that before that off-gem new price cap is announced tomorrow, Friday, when average bills will likely be around £3,600 a year. Absolutely staggering. Most families can't afford it. The government should have announced emergency measures, shouldn't they? It's absolutely outrageous. There will be people, there are already people, I know from my emails, I know from people that email me who watch my On The Money show on GB News, we talk about this pretty much every day, there is genuine anguish out there concern about how people are going to make ends meet. Will I go to prison if I can't pay my fuel bill, etc., etc.? It's been clear for ages that off-gem energy price cap is generated by an algorithm linked to wholesale gas prices. And even before this recent spike in August, which I mentioned earlier, it was clear that it's going to be £3,000 plus. We've had energy industry analysts that stand or fall on their forecasting records saying this literally for weeks, if not months. As I say, this is the first off-gem energy price cap that reflects war in Ukraine because the one that came in in April was decided in mid-February before February 24th when Putin invaded. It's going to be a really, really high number. There should be a sense of the emergency package in place before that number comes out. Meanwhile, Truss and Sunak are just going around the country doing sort of performative politics that even a lot of the Tory faithful are sick and tired of now if you go by the Planet Normal inbox. And I have to add just one thing, Alison. Of course, we should all be focused on households, particularly at the lower end of the income scale. But there is no off-gem energy price cap at all for business, Mm. whether you run a laundrette, a pub, a chip shop or a steelworks you are completely exposed to massive increases in wholesale gas prices. It's the smaller firms that can't negotiate with the energy companies that don't have trading desks that buy 
energy on forward markets and sophisticated mechanisms like that. There's going to be a lot of businesses this autumn and winter, and it gives me no pleasure to say it, who are going to go bust. And that's why throughout this, it's what we do on Planet Normal. We deliver tough economic news and realistic analysis, but we do like to hark back, don't we, to on the buses. We do, Liam, but we've... (laughs) I mean, obviously, you know vast amount about this, but the things I've been finding out. So these small and medium enterprises, which are the absolute, you know, not not just the heart of the country, but the heart of the Conservative Party. This is what the Conservative Party exists to do, is to help these small entrepreneurial family businesses, people getting stuff off the ground, generating work for other people. This is what the Tory ethos is about. And these small, medium enterprises now are paying 20% VAT on their energy compared to 5% for households absolutely outrageous. And these companies, as you say, you do this all the time on your great GB News show, although I'm not on it. I don't know what's going on there. You might be after that economic roundup. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, I see. You're trying to, trying to get your beak into my GB News show, are you? Ousting me out. Crikey. I can reel off these stats with the best of them. But these SMEs, as you know, Liam, they make up 50% of the total revenue generated by UK business. This isn't just some sort of little corner shop. And two thirds of employment, small and medium-sized enterprises. As you said, the Tris and Sunak hustings, it's completely irrelevant whether they cut tax. No, I'm going to give handouts. They're going to have to do Everything. I mean, literally, they're going to have to throw the kitchen sink at it and the gas cooker because we're now getting advice about, oh, batch cook because you won't be able to afford to turn the cooker on. We simply can't have a country (laughs) in this situation. I don't know what you think, but it just seems to me that we've seen some energy company leaders coming forward to say that whatever they come up with tomorrow or the cap or even the previous one of 1,971, which is quite enough for most households never mind the businesses which we've had into the Planet Normal inbox. You know we've had people saying that small business has gone up from paying eight and a half grand a year in energy to 25. These are fantastical sums. They're not going to be able to stay open. So I don't think any discussion about what our energy strategy will be. Are you kidding? You're going to actually just have to freeze this cap so people will be able to live and afford food. Don't you find it farcical, this leadership discussion about what they're going to do. We're talking about on a level of possibly furlough, do you think? Well, the Trust and Sunak camps, they're literally trading fiscal data that's entirely meaningless because it's all based on growth rates and HMRC data from months ago. They're playing these sort of spreadsheet-driven parlour games and trying to secure headlines in the various papers dissing each other. We should be absolutely fully focused on emergency measures possibly preparing for blackouts, reassuring businesses, reassuring families up and down the income scale how we are going to get through this autumn and winter. Look, this off-gem energy price cap for households, it could go up above four, five, even £6,000 into the new year if and when probably this war in Ukraine continues. There's absolutely no way that a government can just freeze a cap without shelling out billions, tens, hundreds of billions of pounds. We spent about £400 billion during lockdown, of course, on those measures, including furlough that you mentioned, because you can't just wish away the wholesale energy market. 
someone has to pay for it. And so if households and firms aren't paying for it, then the government has to stump up the difference. Now, the energy industry itself is trying to come up with uh, deferred payment schemes, which are far more economically coherent than anything the political and indeed the media class has come up with, I have to say. And we called it, Alison. We said getting on for six, eight months ago, there was going to be a summer of discontent, an autumn of anger, even before the war in Ukraine, because you could see inflation building. And we also called it a few weeks ago when we said that the country would get very, very sick and tired of this Tory leadership contest going on and on and on. And there's still a week or so to go and more hustings. And I think it's now looking really irresponsible and indulgent for people just to be politicking when the country is looking for leadership. But as I said at the outset, we're leaderless, we're rudderless. I think you predicted a winter of discontent. Even you couldn't foresee the ongoing summer of discontent. It's I was going to use the word vindicated, Liam, but I'm quite nervous about it because I think Planet Normal listeners will know we were warning as far back as May 2020 that lockdown could end up causing more deaths and chaos than COVID itself. And as you said at the top of the show, the Office for National Statistics is saying that at least a thousand more deaths than usual every single week, an astonishing and deeply troubling number of excess deaths. And you'll remember, Liam, all too well, the abuse we got, Mm. you want people to die, Mm. was the sort of standard allegation when we pointed out that the NHS becoming a COVID-only service was going to have a terrible effect on people suffering from other illnesses. And I was remembering, I said in my column this week, that of course the evening news would carry the dreadful daily toll of COVID deaths, but we're not seeing the BBC and ITV reporting the daily toll of lives being lost now because cancers, heart disease, diabetes, all of these were found and treated too late. We've had a absolute avalanche of emails from listeners, some talking about themselves, some talking about family members, including one I'll read out later about an oncology nurse who couldn't get treated for cancer and is now tragically dying. And I've said in my column, I think this is fast becoming one of the biggest avoidable tragedies of modern times. The target for cancer was for 85% of patients to begin their treatment within 62 days of a hospital receiving an urgent referral. Things were very bad in the UK in terms of cancer treatment, as you know, Liam, before the pandemic, but now they are absolutely catastrophic. Well said, Alison. We must always acknowledge, though, statistically, no one can ever prove a counterfactual and people who did criticise us in those dark days, Alison, will say, oh, but we don't know what would happen to deaths if we hadn't have locked down. And that's true. But all we were ever saying was that lockdown itself had enormous costs. And when we pointed out those enormous costs, as you rightly say, we were very viciously criticised on social media and in other newspapers and by broadcasters. And I think it's fair to say now that it is entirely legitimate to have been pointing out those very heavy costs of lockdown during that period. And there is going to be an almighty debate about this and there will eventually be a public inquiry. But I tell you what, Alison, as we go into the autumn, as the nights draw in, this energy price cap comes out, people start worrying about their bills. 
the cost of living crisis gets tighter, I really do think we're going to face a lot of industrial action. Yes, trade unions are less powerful than they were during that winter of discontent in the 1970s. But we're seeing the power even of private sector trade unions at Felixstowe, right, which accounts for 50% of all containers that come in and out of the UK by steel. We're seeing the power of private sector unions in the transport industry. They are basically private sector workers, even though it's a semi-nationalised sector. But the public sector is over 50% unionised still. And I can see in the next few weeks and months, those public sector unions really turning the screw. My column in The Telegraph last Sunday, and we'll put links to both our columns in the show notes of the episode, was about public sector pay because so many newspapers and broadcasters keep saying that public sector workers are less well-off than private sector workers. It's just not true. Private sector workers get less per week in salary than public sector workers, and then many, many millions of public sector workers get gold-plated final salary pension schemes on top of that. But I can see the public sector unions across health, across education, across the civil service, as Liz Trusk is almost certainly going to be her, comes into office really testing her out, trying to humiliate an incoming Tory prime minister. I have to say, and it gives me no pleasure to say this, I know Liz Trust pretty well. I've got a fair amount of respect for her and I wish her well in office. I want Britain to succeed. I can almost foresee some kind of political crisis in the next few months with Labour, the public sector unions, trying to provoke some kind of vote and no confidence. And it's not entirely impossible that it could succeed when you consider that less than a third of the parliamentary party backed Liz Truss because it was so split, wasn't it, between those three candidates, Sunak, Truss and, of course, Penny Mordaunt. So has a Conservative Prime Minister ever taken office with less support among his or her own parliamentary party at a time of such economic and political fractiousness? I've been racking my brains, but I can't think of such a period. Forget about political honeymoon. I think it's going to be more like Lady Jane Grey, isn't it? How long did she last? Was it nine days? Yeah, I think it's going to be immensely tough for her. As you said, it's been a bit of a pantomime, these hustings promising to Conservative Party members, many of whom are older with properties of their own and decent pensions and so on. I mean, the reality that's going to hit her September the 5th, September the 6th, I think we're going to be in for a really, really rough old ride. Could we be looking at a general strike, Liam? I don't think we'd be looking at a general strike because back in 1926, trade unions were really, really powerful and the British economy was still on a war footing. It's different now. I don't think there'll be an across-the-board general strike. Of course, the general strike was less than a decade after the Russian Revolution and there was genuine concern about communism in Britain. That's why Lloyd George did Homes Fit for Heroes, to try and raise the slums and calm down the great unwashed. But let's be in no doubt, I do think there's going to be very serious industrial action, not least across the private sector unions, and it's going to be very, very tough on the incoming Prime Minister whoever that is. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentated with their finger on the pulse and, of course, 
my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! We've been talking for many weeks, Liam, haven't we, about the cost of lockdown and with the NHS's increasingly dire warnings. Once again, if you can imagine it, telling British people to stay away from accident and emergency departments when we now know the dreadful consequences of telling people to stay at home and support the NHS and not seek treatment for themselves. So this week, I thought we would dig down a bit into where we are with the cancer situation. Professor Pat Price is one of Britain's leading oncologists, having specialised in cancer treatment for 33 years. Pat has an international reputation in the molecular imaging of tumour biology, and she co-edits the UK standard textbook of oncology, Treatment of Cancer, now in its seventh edition. Pat Price founded and is chair of trustees of the national charity Radiotherapy UK and is the secretariat for the all-party parliamentary group on radiotherapy. In 2010, Pat returned to Imperial College as visiting professor in oncology, where she's involved in extraordinary large-scale international research. During the COVID pandemic, Professor Pat Price set up the high-profile Catch Up With Cancer campaign to lobby the government for a new national cancer recovery plan. In recent weeks, listeners will probably have heard Pat making increasingly passionate, even desperate attempts, appealing for action to tackle the UK's catastrophic cancer backlog. So I began by asking Pat Price, on a scale of 1 to 10, How bad is the UK's cancer crisis? It's certainly 10. It is the worst cancer crisis ever. And the problem is, it's getting worse and worse every day. And I don't see how, unless they do something very radical, how it's going to not continue to get worse. And of course, it's really important, these delays. For every four weeks delay in cancer treatment, there's on average a 10% reduction in survival. Yes, I was going to say to you that there were 5,000 patients waiting that long for cancer treatment in June 2021. So it's doubled since June 2021. Why is it getting worse? Well, it's entirely predictable that it's getting worse. And we have been warning about that since the beginning of the pandemic. Obviously, the start of COVID was a great trauma for the NHS. But remember, we had the lowest survival of Western countries before we went into the pandemic. And then obviously, the first few months of the pandemic, nobody knew what was happening. And that's all forgivable. But we were very clear early on, you mustn't stop cancer treatment, you must just crack on with it. And there was a sort of approach to it that if you didn't need to treat, see if you can delay. And then that sort of got imbaked in the system. And then, of course, patients did what they were told to do. They stayed at home. And then into the second year, we have the GPs have difficulties. So patients, if they did present, they couldn't get appointments. And by this time, the hospitals had bigger delays. So the whole thing has just got gummed up the system. So our delay and the backlog of cancer patients has just got worse and worse. And we're not even getting as many through now as we should. So when that backlog does come forward, 
we just don't have the treatment capacity. So this is going to get worse unless the government do a complete handbrake turn and completely change their attitude to the cancer crisis. As you say, Pat, during the lockdowns, the public was given that perhaps fatal instruction, stay at home, support the NHS. Many senior doctors like you warned quite clearly that people not coming forward with symptoms could have catastrophic consequences, particularly for diseases like cancer. I remember vividly a Panorama programme in July 2020, which warned that services like radiotherapy and scans were being paused. Pat, why were so many British screening programmes and treatments paused when that doesn't seem to have happened in other comparable countries? Yes. Panorama programme, of course, was led by Deborah James, who sadly... Yes, And she made the very good point that cancer patients shouldn't be a collateral of the COVID crisis. And I think we just lacked that 200% commitment to absolutely doing everything that was going to get everything back. Screening programmes, get anybody you can presenting, do what we needed to do. We had been calling right at the beginning for it to be like that vaccine moment that the government said, this is a major issue. Get somebody in charge of it, cast away all bureaucracy and get on with it. And we didn't get that. For the first nine months, we had the NHS senior management saying they didn't know if there was a backlog. They didn't know how big it was. And it was only actually when David Javid came to be health secretary nearly two years in, did somebody say, oh, there's a problem. Let's have a war on cancer. Too late. Why wasn't there a think tank in the government and the NHS that said, "Okay, we're going to have this massive problem. What do we do and start now? It is never too late to start. But it then didn't get started. After nine months, we had a so-called recovery group and we were going to get better by March 2021. No action points in it, just hope. And then that failed. And the next year we were going to get better by March 2022. And even this year in the Queen's speech, we're going to get better by March 23. What? How are you going to do that if you don't do anything? And I think now it's just got into the too difficult to deal with pile. And also the whole of the NHS, everything a complete crisis. So now, where is cancer in the overall crisis? In fact, I think cancer's fallen off the agenda. All we hear is quite rightly accident emergency and all these other things. All backlogs are bad, but cancer is the most deadly backlog and it's the most time critical. So somehow we've got to get this back on the agenda. I know it's a difficult problem, but you know, when you're going down the wrong road, it's never too late to stop and actually go down the right road. On Planet Normal, we've heard from radiographers saying that before, where they would have found stage one and stage two cancers, patients are now coming in with stage four cancer and often being sent straight to palliative care. As you know, Pat, that means the cancer is often too far advanced to be treated. I just want to ask, in your experience, how common is that tragic situation? And um, what are we talking about now in terms of increased deaths? Is it hundreds? Is it thousands? 
oh, there will be tens of thousands of cancer patients who will then lose their lives prematurely because of this. We were already seeing patients coming through late, right in the first six to eight months. We see that all over the place. It's terribly disheartening for frontline staff because they know that difference. And again, once you go over a tipping point, if you've got the spread, then it can't be cured. And of course, also, that means that we actually often we have to do more treatment for patients. So then again, we're running out of treatment capacity. It's a sort of vicious circle. Once you go on that downward spiral, it's not only are more patients' lives going to be lost, but you actually can't catch up and get back to where you needed to be. And I'm like you, I don't understand why nobody saw this coming. You've said it very well, but I just want to say it for Planet Normal listeners. Men, women, even children are dying this very day simply because we can't organise ourselves to give them treatment. That's correct, is it, Pat Price? Absolutely right. And we shouldn't be the sort of country that patients die because we can't organise ourselves to give treatment on time. Liam and I heard a while ago from a listener called Nick Stokes, who told us that his wife, Joy, she'd recovered several years ago from breast cancer. And Joy, during lockdown, developed terrible pain in her hip. Over many months, Joy tried and tried and failed to get an appointment with her GP. By the time Nick went down to the surgery to bang on the door, demanding painkillers for his wife, Joy's cancer had spread to her spine and she very sadly died soon afterwards. Joy was appallingly let down by primary care and her GP surgery acknowledged that. We know for a fact that there was a huge decrease in GP referrals during the pandemic. How much, Pat, was that partly to blame for the cancer backlog? And do you think GP referrals are now back up to where they should be? It's a tragic story, isn't it? Ones we hear all over the place. I don't want to blame individual GPs here because it is a systems failure. But this is what we hear all around the time. But remember, our delays are at every stage of the process. It's patients feeling they can't present yet or being too frightened, not being able to get GPs appointments, then referrals in are taking too long. And then when they get in their pathology departments for the biopsies are backlogged, so they are taking too long, then the diagnostic services to get the biopsies, all this type of thing and the scanning, and then to see the surgeons or to see the radiotherapists, it's delays throughout the whole process. And that's the problem. And it is a systems error. But we also know that at great cost, the state requisitioned all of the private hospitals in the country. They were not being used. As it happens, about 18 months ago, I had a suspected lump in my breast. I was referred to our private hospital, which was still doing scans. They cleared that up, Pat, in a day and a half. Why on earth were we not using the private hospital's capacity that the British taxpayer had paid for? And are we now not missing a trick by basically doing the same again, requisitioning the private hospitals to accelerate the treatment, to clear up that backlog? This is absolutely one way to help. And this is, again, it shows us without the leadership and with the bureaucracy, it's just not happening. We wrote to Matt Hancock the 1st of April 2020, two weeks into lockdown, and said he must use that private sector. And was the private sector used for cancer? 
it wasn't particularly. And the problem was the leadership in the NHS devolved it to local areas to decide if they were going to purchase services from the private sector. And of course, if you devolve it round to trusts, then they're dealing with COVID patients coming in the door. They had all this issue. And again, there was nothing coming down from above, was there? That there's a cancer crisis. So nothing really got requisitioned there. And in fact, one of the private sector cancer providers with four cancer centres throughout the country went into administration. That is just madness. And yet, of course, patients who have got the money now are paying for it themselves to have their treatment. So we've heard a lot, Pat, about the extra billions which are being put into the NHS for COVID catch-up. We know we're having this national insurance rise and that's supposed to be billions of pounds for the NHS. Now, Pat, you are co-founder of the Catch-Up with Cancer campaign with 35 other oncologists you've written to, health ministers calling for urgent action, including an expansion in radiotherapy services. Is this catch-up money, this vast sum of catch-up money, Is it getting through to the front line or if not, where the hell is it going? Well, certainly in radiotherapy, we're not seeing it. We were given a small 32 million to buy a few new treatment machines last year. But this is nowhere near what is needed. Most of the money that's been announced has been for the elective backlog. There's been specific money for diagnostic radiology, which is really welcomed, which is great. But we heard only a couple of weeks ago, some of that money is now going to be clawed back so that it can pay for pay rises. So they're giving with one hand and taking with the other. But our point is, you've also got to increase treatment capacity. And there has been no money for that. You've got to increase treatment capacity. There's no way around it. And remember, that means people and it means equipment. And what is so distressing is we have had countless summits, letters in. It's not as though nobody's got any idea. And it's a system where now it's so bureaucratically heavy and we're even having more bureaucracy added in on the top. The frontline staff have been stifled. They give ideas. They're told to basically be quiet about them. You should flip it entirely on its head. You should empower the staff to do all those things they need to. This is an absolute national emergency. They should be doing all this and then also give them the tools they need. Take, for instance, in radiotherapy. Government are missing an absolute trick here. Nobody seems to understand what radiotherapy is. Of course, when we treat cancer, it's either surgery or systemic therapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or it's radiotherapy. The two curative treatments are mainly surgery and radiotherapy. Radiotherapy is needed in one in two patients, and it's needed in 40% of cures. So if you don't have a good radiotherapy service, you don't really have a good cancer service. And yet it has been strangled for so many years now. There's only about 6,000 professionals in the whole country treating over 100,000 patients a year on about 350 machines. It is extremely cheap treatment. It costs about £4,000 to be cured with radiotherapy compared with some immunotherapy drugs. It's £100,000 a course. We could actually slash through radiotherapy waiting lists and also some surgical lists if we got a proper plan rather than just everybody thinking they don't know what to do. There are solutions out there, but nobody seems to understand the magnitude of the problem. And so it gets worse every day. What strikes me as being so short-sighted, Pat, is 
these people are dying and some of them are dying younger, their mothers, their fathers, not just the cost in heartbreak, but the cost to the system, isn't it? To their children, to their wider families, to the benefits that are needed. It's not just about cancer statistics, is it? It's actually about vast knock-on costs to society as a whole, isn't it? Yes. And I think, remember, cancer affects everybody. One in two people are going to get cancer. This is an awful time to get cancer and it affects so many, it touches so many. It's bad enough having cancer without knowing that you just can't get the treatment you need on time. And then we talk about research breakthroughs. We don't need that at the moment. We just need to give normal treatment on time. And that's why in some ways I have to think to myself, why have I put so much effort into that? But right from the very first day of lockdown, we were having people phone up in desperate situations. Where do I go? My operation's been cancelled. I was so distressed about it. It's just not fair on cancer patients. And somebody's got to stand up for them. What we're calling for, really, is we want to meet with the new Secretary of State, come with some world-class frontline people, give them some solutions. It doesn't have to be this way. But it will be if you keep ignoring the frontline staff, ignoring the situation and ignoring it so bad. I think the problem is, you know, when we had COVID, of course, it was so distressing to see those patients breathing on ventilators. Oh, and you see patients now in ambulances. But the trouble is cancer patients are just dying quietly at home, aren't they? And will do so in the future. It's not as visible. And so how do we make sure that they're given as much priority as all these other things? Interestingly, when we had the media a couple of weeks ago and I was speaking on the radio, I had no end of doctors from around the country saying, at last somebody's spoken up. Because there is obviously this, if you work for the NHS, you're not supposed to speak up. I think the time is now to actually call it out. This is not acceptable. It has gone past it. It's not acceptable. And if you don't do anything, I don't know how it can get better. Well, by the powers vested in me by Planet Normal, Professor Price, I am giving you today unlimited manpower and funds to sort the cancer crisis. If we had whoever is the new health secretary, what do they do on day one? Exactly what we did with the vaccine. We make sure we've got right from the top the PM's approval. You go away and do what you like. You get a team in there of all the good and great who know what to do. You cast away your bureaucracy. You use the data, get every single best brain in it and actually empower the frontline staff, give them the tools and don't accept no for an answer. If you get radiotherapy centres equipped properly, they can give treatment, put them in the diagnostic hubs, get them nearer to home. And if you empower all that work Force, they will find ways of getting it through the system, getting those scans done, giving the priority, but it will need investment. How much do you think? What are we talking about to get it really up and running? Well, we know we need 850 million in radiotherapy and the surgery and diagnostics. I think we probably need a couple of billion, but that's not a lot of money. And the problem is, if you don't spend that money, you're going to be spending far more money. So this is actually going to save you money in the end. Well, there are, let's remind ourselves. There were pre-pandemic around 167,000 people who died of cancer in the UK every year. And from what you're telling me, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, you know, due to this appalling state of affairs, if we could be even looking at double that. Do you think that's possible, Pat? Some people have put it as high as that. Um, a lot will depend on what happens from here on in. 
but it's not good news. This is just a disaster. It's in the too difficult to deal with pile now. Well, I know I speak for all Planet Normal listeners and Telegraph readers. Thank you for the absolutely righteous fuss you're making because it is disgraceful. Professor Pat Price, thank you so much for coming aboard the rocket this week. I tell you what, Alison, what struck me when I was listening to Professor Pat Price, who, of course, has got an academic list of journal articles in prestigious places, as long as your proverbial arm, a historic parallel sprung to my mind. Ahead of the Battle of Britain, when Britain needed spitfires, what happened? Churchill got in Beaverbrook, a massive kind of mover and shaker, whatever you think of him, he was a newspaper magnate, obviously. But somebody from outside government, from outside the blob, to just put a ferret up everyone's trouser leg and make stuff happen in time of national need. Ferret up trouser leg, of course, being a common phrase in journalism. We need something like that to happen, don't we? Because I just don't think our political and media and Mandarin class can deal with this. As Pat Price says, this is now filed in the too difficult box. Yes, I mean, I found it quite shattering talking to Pat and digging deep into the stats. She doesn't use these words lightly. She said this is not acceptable. It is a disaster. People are dying today simply because we can't organise ourselves to give them treatment. Are we any longer a first world country, Liam, when we know people aren't able to get life-saving treatment? I think we're, we're really now on a sort of slippery slope. And you're right, there is discomfort, embarrassment, shame, a silence. I mean, I can hardly believe the numbers that we're talking about. The average before the pandemic was 460 people dying every day of cancer. These are people, Liam. That's not a number. This is men, women, even children, not old people, not people 82.4 years old who were predominantly dying of COVID. Not that one would want to underestimate that impact. But nevertheless, these are people in prime of life with loving, caring responsibilities who are going to be losing their life. And I find the silence, the lack of leadership from, I mean, God knows who the health secretary is now. Allegedly, it's Steve Barclay. Who'd know? They're all doing, as you said earlier, political pantomime while thousands of people can't get a biopsy. Imagine how terrifying if you or I tomorrow found a lump and they said, oh, you know, we might be able to fit you in in November. Where are we? We'd be better off in Romania getting cancer care. Are we a first world country? Well, I've just noticed that the inflation rate in Brazil has gone below 10%, whereas, of course, it's 10.3% here. And talking of leadership, we should mention we've had sight, haven't we, of an interview that Rishi Sunak's given to The Spectator. Of course, The Spectator isn't published as we're currently recording, but it will be out when Planet Normal is released on Thursday. And it really is a quite astonishing intervention by the former Chancellor possibly his last roll of the leadership dice. Yes, Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator, has this astonishing interview to be published in this week's Spectator. And Sunak is basically blowing the lid off what happened with lockdown in government. He begins by saying that Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance openly admitted at the start that lockdown could do more harm than good. But as the evidence started to come in, there was a strange silence descended in government. The policy, as Sunak describes it, was see no evil. 
And Sunak, I mean, there's absolutely astonishing quotations in the Spectator interview. I wasn't allowed to talk about the trade-off, says Sunak. Ministers were briefed, Liam, by number 10 on how to handle the questions about the side effects of lockdown. And the script was never to acknowledge that there were any side effects. And the number 10 strategy, Sunak says, was to create the impression that lockdown was a scientifically created policy, which only crackpots, that's crackpots like you and me, co-pilot, would dare to question. And he ends by saying in this astonishing spectator interview, we shouldn't have empowered the scientists the way that we did. We should have acknowledged the trade-offs from the start. And coming back to what Pat Price was saying, Sunak talks about trying to raise. We didn't talk at all about the missed doctor's appointments or the backlog in the NHS in a massive way. That was never part of it. When I did try to raise those concerns, I met a brick wall. Those meetings were literally me around the table, just frightening. It was incredibly uncomfortable. He recalls one meeting when he raised education. I was very emotional about it. I was like, forget about the economy. Surely we can all agree that kids not being in school is a major nightmare. There was a big silence afterwards. It was the first time anyone had said anything. I was so furious. Well, I'll tell you what, Alison, let me first say what an incredible interview. Hats off to Fraser Nelson and The Spectator. Lockdown was an awful period. The Spectator, all right, we're part of the same journalistic family, but I think the whole of Britain's media class will acknowledge, if they're honest, The Spectator has been so on it in terms of presenting data, being straight down the line in terms of its reporting, scientific and political during this lockdown. And Rishi Sunak now is saying this, but I'm slightly miffed about this. Where was he? Where was he? Where's he been for the last year? He's now saying all this stuff because he thinks it might give him some incremental advantage as he tries to salvage a leadership bid, which, quite frankly, in my view, has taken some pretty major strategic wrong turnings. If Rishi Sunak was doing this and believed it, surely such is the importance of the issues he is discussing. He should have stood up. He should have resigned. He should have called out what was happening. Did he put his political future ahead of all this stuff? It, again, to me, this strikes as just political parlour games, you know, using the rest of us as kind of lab rats. It, he's saying this now because it might be to his political advantage. If he'd have said this during lockdown, I know that Boris Johnson felt the same way about a lot of this, but felt completely isolated in Cabinet. If he wouldn't have allowed people like you and me to be hung out to dry by so much of the media and so on, if he'd have backed the likes of Mark Harper and the COVID recovery group, then maybe history would have been different. Maybe lives would have been saved. So that's what I say to Rishi Sunak. What took you so long? Well, I take a more sympathetic view because I think he was in a very difficult spot because during a pandemic, people expect to see unity and consistency from a government during a national emergency. So I think it probably was very, very difficult. And the other issue, Liam, is that anything he said, which might have been he wants to depose Boris. This is all to do with his leadership bid. So I think it was difficult. And Fraser Nelson does say in the interview that what Rishi Sunak is saying now does bear out what he heard, that the whole time Sunak 
in the cabinet was the only voice constantly pushing back against this dreadful, really, narrative of fear. Liz Truss apparently was silent, which I think is revealing. We know that our own Planet Normal listener, Lord Frost, David Frost, in the end, it was David Frost marching out of Cabinet to protesting against the idea of a lockdown last Christmas, which did bring the whole thing to a head. But personally, when I was reading the Rishi Sunak interview in The Spectator, you know, anything that makes you feel a sense of relief, really, because... It was a lonely battle, co-pilot. Sometimes you felt you were going mad. And what this interview tells you is they wanted us to be cast as crackpots. That was the plan. The plan all along was they would generate fear. And anyone who questioned the basis of the fear was to be depicted as mad. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to Rishi Sunak. Thank you. I know you're saying he's saying it too late. He is saying it too late. But thank you for saying it at all. Now onto our listener emails. A lot this week, inevitably, about the collapse of the country, Halligan. But please do keep your wonderful messages coming. We're having a lot from gentlemen listeners, which are marvellous, but it'd be really nice if some more women would write in. This is from Ken. My daughter, age 49 and an oncology nurse, was denied a face-to-face interview with her GP when she complained during lockdown of back pain. She was treated for sciatica for many months, given ever stronger painkillers, eventually sent for an MRI. By then, stage four breast cancer with metatastic spread to her spine, pelvis, femur, and incidentally her skull, plus other complications. Now in a hospice with poor prognosis. Due to her professional training, my daughter is only too aware of the outcome. Yes, Alison and Liam, keep plugging away, sadly, for all the good it will do in our broken health system. We're so sorry, Ken, about your lovely daughter. And James writes to us, Dr. James, a consultant gynaecologist. When I was first appointed, any GP who had a patient in their surgery who they thought might have cancer could ring the hospital and speak directly to the gynaecologist in the outpatients department. There was a clinic every morning and if appropriate, the patient would be asked to come straight to the clinic with a referral letter. She could then be examined and investigations arranged that same day, sometimes including a biopsy. Over the years, we became able to offer biopsies and ultrasound scans in the clinic wherever needed. This all had to stop when the cancer pathway and two-week wait and a new computerised patient management system were introduced. All the same facilities were available in the clinic, but apparently the system could not cope with an appointment date that was the same as the date on the referral letter. We did occasionally manage to sneak patients in the same day as referral, but it became much more difficult as referral letters instead of going directly to the consultant, all had to be sent to the records department to be registered before being sent to the consultant to prioritise and then sent back to the records department who sent out the appointment to the patient. This greatly added to the time our patients expected to have cancer were waiting to be seen. But by that time, hospitals were under control of managers, not the medical executive committee. Best wishes, James. This is from Tam. 
Dear Liam, great article on public sector pay. That was my piece last Sunday. I was astonished, says Tam, to learn that many civil servants, even up to relatively senior management positions, still get flexi time awarded so that if they work any extra hours, they're then entitled to take, say, every fourth Friday off with that extra time worked. Seriously? I reckon that was pretty much phased out in the private sector 30 years ago. It's just outrageous. You also discuss public sector pensions, which are scandalous, and the government should be making much more of how valuable they are when negotiating with public sector unions. My daughter's in the civil service, and her employer contribution on her payslip is shown as 30%, which is simply astonishing. Even though the contributions are notional, as civil servants, unlike those in the private sector, will always get their final salary pension, uprated each year, come what may, financed, guaranteed by taxpayers. All the best, Tam. Here's one, Alison, from Jasper. It isn't just the NHS where nothing happens. Energy. We should all be going out to increase supply. Nothing happens. Greg Hans, energy minister, sits on his uh, hands. <laughs> Illegal immigrants. Nothing happens. Inadequate woke policing, where a nine-year-old can be gunned down at random in her home. Nothing happens. Freedom of speech is curtailed by the vociferous, tiny trans lobby. Nothing happens. Universities prioritise money-making over educating UK citizens. Nothing happens. Boris plays king of the castle. There is no government. Nothing happens. Jasper, as we said, it's leaderless, it's rudderless, and it's hopeless. And finally, from a listener who calls himself Pie Eater. It's not me. <laughs> Missing, presumed lost, one British government, notable features. It is weak and cannot defend its own territory. It is blind and deaf, so it cannot see what is happening around it. It has no backbone, and when confronted, it has a habit of putting its head in the sand. You think you would be able to spot such a creature, but sadly not. Meanwhile, the UK declines by the day. But we're still here, Halligan. We're on planet normal. Never mind. We're on planet normal and we're keeping calm and we're carrying on and we're <laughs> keeping our collective chins up. And that's it from planet normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week. It's my turn, Alison. Look, it has to go to Ken. Deepest condolences to you, Ken, from me, Alison, and the rest of the citizens of Planet Normal. And we're not going to shut up about it, Ken. We're going to keep going to get justice for people like your daughter. If you enjoy Planet Normal, we really hope you do. Please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does help other people to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our fabulous producers. There's Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>